0: All right, well, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We are nearing the end of this series in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm. It's, in fact, the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And it's all about the law of God. And while we are nearing the end of this psalm, we are nowhere near having exhausted all that there is to learn and celebrate about God's law. I hope that you've seen, as we've gone through this, the value of continuing to learn God's law for the wisdom that is found there. This morning, we're gonna be looking specifically at verses 153 through 160. And since we're tackling eight verses rather than what we often do, four verses, we'll move fairly quickly through them. And then as we've done throughout the series, we're gonna spend some time kind of zooming out and looking at one larger principle about God's law. And this morning, it's going to be the same principle that we've looked at for the last couple of weeks, seeing that even the case laws in the Old Testament that seem so strange to our ears continue to have validity for us today. Not necessarily in all the particulars, just like the ceremonial law continues, not in all of the rituals, but in a different way. The underlying principles are unchanging. So those things are still binding on us today. But first, Psalm 119, verses 153 to 160. Go ahead and follow along as I read. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Well, Let's begin with verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. As Christians, we should expect to face affliction. We have this kind of innate natural tendency to think, well, if I do a good job of obeying God's rules, then God will reward me with an easy, trouble-free life. It is true that there are blessings for obeying God's law, and sometimes those blessings take material form. It can be wealth, it can be you know, flourishing in various ways, it can be you know, healthy relationships. There are blessings to obeying God's law. But that doesn't mean that those blessings will come without afflictions and difficulties. Some of the most rewarding things in life come as a result of hard work and fighting through the challenges and difficulties, whether that's a marriage or a business or other achievements. So we should not be surprised as Christians when we face difficulties and afflictions. It's also true as Christians, we are followers of God and therefore we should expect that we're going to face opposition from God's enemies. A soldier doesn't go into a tour of duty expecting that he's going to see nothing but peace and tranquility. A sailor doesn't hop on a voyage across the ocean expecting to have calm seas the whole time you know that you're going to encounter some difficulties. There's nothing different about that for the Christian life. But it's true that God is our deliverer. And so the psalmist here says, look on my affliction and deliver me. In Psalm 31, we read, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. God is our deliverer. So when we come to the New Testament, James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Take it to God. He's our deliverer. And the psalmist here says, for I do not forget your law. He keeps God's law. Now, that wording here, for, we would kind of read that as because. Uh, deliver me because I do not forget your law. That's probably not the best way to read it. The Hebrew word there is a really broad word. It can mean just like it's a, it's a connecting word, a causal relationship of any kind. So we could read this maybe a little better as in order that or in response, I will keep your law or not forget your law. So the psalmist keeps God's law because God is his deliverer. The psalmist keeps God's law because it's the best way to live. But he recognizes that God will deliver him from the affliction that he faces. Verse 154, then Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Here we see that God is our advocate. Plead my cause. That's like a a lawyer or an advocate of some kind. Someone who steps up to defend you. But someone probably that's stronger or in a better position to do it than you are. Fight on my behalf. There's some illustrations that can help us of something like this. In ancient Rome, you had a relationship between a patron and a client. The patrons would have been the, the more wealthy or higher social status individuals. And this supposedly even goes back to the founder, one of the founders of Rome, Romulus, who said that people who were in that class should find people who were in the lower class that they can represent and help. And then those people, the clients, would in turn have some measure of loyalty to their patron. And so there would be a, a relationship of mutual aid that goes on. Well, I mean, that could be representation in legal courts. It could be just generally seeking the good of your clients. It could be even the the case that someone who's captured in a time of war, the patron might pay the ransom to get them back. There's all kinds of ways that the patron would help them. And the Latin word there is patronus. For those of you that are fans of the Harry Potter series, you'll recognize that word because that is the, 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 the patronus is the one who shows up to help protect from the evil dementors. Uh, uh, Patronus is more powerful, comes to your aid, protects you from evil. Those kinds of things are on a very small human scale, whether it's in fiction or in history, illustrations of what the psalmist is getting at here. He's talking about God being the one who comes to his aid, the one who is his representative, his advocate, his helper, And we see that God is the one who upholds our life. The psalmist says, give me life according to your promise. God's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the self-existent one who has the power of life in himself. When he reveals himself in the Old Testament to Moses, he says that his name is I Am. He's the self-existent one. Jesus says in John chapter five, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. God is the one who has life and his word is a life-giving word. The Bible is God's means of communicating life-giving truth to people. So Jesus is called the word of life and his word, the Bible, is the word of life. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Paul calls scripture the word of life. He says, hold fast to the word of life. When that God, the God who has life in himself and is the creator and sustainer, when that God is your advocate, you can't lose. When you have and believe his word, you have life. Verse 155 then, salvation is far from the wicked for they do not seek your statutes. Why is salvation far from the wicked? The Puritan Thomas Manton says this, he says, wicked men are the authors of their own ruin. Salvation does not fly from them, but they fly from it. They are far from the law and therefore is salvation far from them. And we have to be careful here because what is not being said is that if you keep the law, you gain salvation. That's not what is being said. But there is a correlation. Those who despise God's law will never humble themselves to receive God's mercy. It's when you see God's law and you recognize that you're a lawbreaker, and that you stand convicted by the law And you stand under the penalty of the law and there's nothing you personally can do about it, that's when you're in a place to turn to God for mercy and to receive his salvation. So the wicked reject God's law. They reject the idea of their own condemnation. They don't see the need for the salvation God freely offers. And so salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. The flip side, of course, is that we, as God's people, should be seeking God's statutes. God's rules guide us in how to serve him. They teach us how God has designed us for true happiness, true joy. I think a good example of someone in scripture who is described in this way is Ezra. Ezra... um, leads the Jews to return from Persia and to reform a community based on obedience to God's word. And Ezra 7 verse 10 describes him this way, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. To study it, to do it, to teach it. That's someone who is seeking God's statutes. Verse 156, great is your mercy, O Lord, give me life according to your rules. The word mercy here is not, um, there's a word that's used really often in the Old Testament. You've heard me talk about it before, chesed. It's a word that gets translated as grace or mercy or God's loving kindness or his steadfast love. It's a really big word. That's not the word that's being used here. The word that's being used here is a word that just means compassion or pity, and it actually comes from the root of the word womb. So it's the love and compassion that a mother has for her baby. As a mother nourishes and gives life to her baby, so God gives life to his children. God's mercy is described in this verse as great, much, many, abounding is what that word means. So That kind of compassionate care and mercy that God has, he has on a great scale. And one thing that we need to be reminded of here is that Jesus says in Luke chapter six, be merciful even as your father is merciful. So when we're reminded that God is merciful like that to us, the lesson we should take away is, I need to turn around and be merciful like that to others. God gives life to us here, the psalmist says, according to your rules. Now, two verses before, he said, according to your promise or according to your word. Here, he says, according to your rules. God gives life to us in a way that is consistent with his rules. How does he do that? Because according to God's law, I deserve death. I deserve hell. So according to God's rules, how can I be given life? And the answer, of course, is in Christ. God's justice is answered in Christ. When Christ takes the penalty of my sin on the cross, God's justice is satisfied in regards to me. And so when I have faith in him, his righteousness, his law-keeping, his rule-keeping stands in my place. I'm dressed in his righteousness. And so God's rules are life-giving in that way. In Christ, we have eternal life. And God's rules are life-giving just in a temporal, everyday sense in that they display for us how we're supposed to live, how God has designed for life to work. And so God's rules are life-giving in that they bring human flourishing when we follow them. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. The psalmist faces opposition from many. It's a continuation of this plea for God's mercy and help, but he remains committed to God's testimonies. It would be really easy to give up on God's law, especially if keeping God's law is why you're facing the opposition. A lot of times when we try to do what it is that God has called us to do, that's what brings the opposition. And it would be easy to give up on keeping God's law. It would be easy, as the psalmist says here, to swerve from keeping God's testimonies. The word, the word um, remember what God says. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It would be really easy for us to swerve away from that and to say, no, I'll, I'll handle that. I'll I'll handle the vengeance thing. I'll take care of that myself. The psalmist, though, if you think about the application of this, he doesn't seek vengeance outside of God's law. He's going to follow God's law in each of its details, even in how he responds to the persecution that he's facing. I can remember when we had first bought our very first house, I tried to do some plumbing on my own. It did not go well. I made a mess. I broke a few things and still had to call a plumber to come fix it. And so he came and it cost me more than it would have had I done it that way in the first place, right? So I just, I hadn't learned plumbing. I just made a mess of things. We'd kind of do the same thing with God when we swerve from God's testimonies and we try to do things our own way. We just make it worse. And it's a It's a longer path back, so to speak. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Verse 158 then, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. This kind of verse doesn't necessarily sit right with us today because it sounds a little, maybe politically incorrect, but this is a righteous loathing that the psalmist is talking about here. That's what the word disgust here is, it's loathing. And the word faithless is someone who's treacherous or a transgressor, they transgress God's boundaries. So the idea is someone who by transgressing God's law sets themselves up as an enemy of God. And it's right for God's people to loathe those who transgress God's law. It's the flip side of loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you hate what is opposed to him. That doesn't, though, preclude compassion and evangelism. We should still have compassion. We should still be sharing the gospel. Those things need to be held in tension in our lives. And the cause here is they don't keep God's commands. It's an offense against God's righteousness, against his majesty. And really, when this is what characterizes a people, when they're faithless, when they transgress God's law, they don't keep his commands, that's damaging to a community, that's damaging to a nation. And so it's right for us to loathe that, to be opposed to that. Because God's law is for our good. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. So the psalmist here says that he's committed to God's laws. He loves God's laws because God's laws are an expression of God's character and he loves God. Therefore, he loves God's laws. Naturally, then that overflows into him obeying God's laws. But what's interesting to me in this verse is that he appeals to God for life not on the basis of the fact that he's keeping God's laws, but he asks on the basis of God's steadfast love. If he loves God's law and he obeys it, why doesn't he appeal for life on the basis of keeping God's law? Calvin answers, he says, he had a special regard to the whole of God's promises. He pleads not That he deserved to be helped but he desired to be defended as in a law court according to the mercy of god we have to hold the law and the gospel together a lot of people like to put law and gospel as if they are at odds with each other they are not they go hand in hand the law shows us our sin The law never provides for us a means of salvation. It's only the gospel that does that. It's only God's grace and his mercy. I can never keep God's law well enough to earn salvation. But after I've received that salvation, okay, the law has brought me to to show me my need. Salvation comes to me as a free gift of God in the gospel, Now, what role does the law have? Well, the the law still shows me how God has designed for us to live. It still reveals God's will to us. And so the law and the gospel are both good. They, They work hand in glove. They're both necessary. They serve different purposes in the life of God's children. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. And then the last verse from Psalm 119 this morning that we will look at is verse 160. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. All of God's word is truth. The word sum here is the word summit or top, the head, the chief part that kind of represents the whole, the total thing. What this means is that God's word is truth All of it, not just the parts we like. So, the parts that show up on, you know, Thomas Kincaid paintings and Instagram posts and things like that, yep, those are God's Word, those are truth. But all the rest of it is too. All the parts that we tend to be embarrassed of, the parts that we have trouble explaining. The strange and weird laws, the politically incorrect statements, and all, all of it is God's truth. And that means we have a responsibility to change our thinking, to conform it to God's Word. When you come across a part of God's Word that you don't like, you're not sure what it means, or it doesn't sit right with you, it seems to go against how people today think when we find parts of God's word like that, or you know, we think it's a little bit rough, it's a little bit extreme, maybe it's a bit explicit. At those points, what we are actually finding is not a fault in God's word, we're finding a fault in ourselves. We're finding a fault in our own thinking because God's word is truth, all of it. And so we need to change our thinking Every one of God's rules, the psalmist says, endures forever. God's word is, Calvin says, nothing but righteous. It is true from the beginning. Your righteousness will endure to the end and without end. And so we've been talking about the case laws in the Old Testament. Every one of them has enduring validity for us today not necessarily in the details, just like the ceremonial laws don't continue in the rituals, but the underlying principles there are binding for us. They're not just helpful. They're not just good advice, but they are binding. We must obey them. So put a fence around your roof. Okay, we don't actually put a fence around our roof, but the principle that's in that law is binding on us. We should anticipate likely risks And out of a love for human life created by God, we should mitigate those risks. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Probably most of us are not in danger of doing that specific thing. But the principle, don't mix life and death, is a principle that we need to learn how to apply in our lives today. Men shouldn't dress like women. We'll probably get to that one in future weeks. Yes, that still applies today. And that's why throughout this series, we've tried each week to look at an Old Testament law and explain what it means and what it looks like for us to still honor and obey it today. So the principle that we've been looking at now for a couple of weeks is this. Old Testament case laws illustrate larger principles that have broad application. Old Testament case laws illustrate larger principles that have broad application. Now, in the eight verses that we just looked at in Psalm 119 this morning, three times we heard the psalmist say to God, give me life, followed by an appeal to either God's word or God's character. Give me life according to your promise or your word. Give me life according to your rules. Give me life according to your steadfast love. God is a God of life. And that commitment to life, that priority on life, is reflected in God's word and in God's law. And I want us to look this morning at two particular case laws. They will probably seem unrelated to each other at first, but I think the underlying principles beneath them are at least similar. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Now, if you're looking in your Bible at the headings that they kind of add in there to give you what's going on in each section. The heading, at least in my Bible, on this section, the first part of Deuteronomy 22 is various laws. (laughs) In other words, the people that were putting the titles in weren't sure what the theme was that's running through here. They just call it various laws. And so we're gonna look at one of these laws. It's verses six and seven. We actually looked at verse eight previously. But verses six and seven are an interesting one. And here's what it says. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. Okay, so let's start by explaining the law. What is this law saying that you are allowed to do? Well, you are allowed to take the eggs or the young for your own use. Now, that might mean that you take the young and you raise them for food or for producing eggs. It might just mean that you take the eggs and you use it for an omelet. God said to Noah in Genesis 9, verse 3, "...every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." Okay, so that's what you're allowed to do. Now, what's the restriction in this law? What are you not allowed to do? You're not allowed to take the mother and the young. If there's a bird with no young, you could take the bird. But if you see that that bird has young, you may not take the mother. So why would that be the case? Well, one reason, it's kind of implied, it's not stated, if you took the mother And left the young, that would be cruel to the young because they would be left to starve. Another reason is that this is just generally good stewardship. So if you take the young and you leave the mother, what is the mother going to do? She's going to produce more young, okay? And so the species continues, the production continues. It's just generally good stewardship. One of the keys to understanding this law is in the clause here that's a motive clause, It says that it may go well with you and that you may live long. In other words, it's good for mankind when man stewards nature according to God's law. God gives laws like this for our good. But do you recognize the phrasing? Does it sound familiar to you? That it may go well with you and that you may live long? We see that phrasing in the fifth commandment. Out of the 10 commandments, honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The fifth commandment is part of honoring God because it's respecting his design and authority. The hierarchy that God has put in place. Parents represent God to their children. So the authority of a parent is delegated by God to them for the child's good. In the same way, honoring this law about birds is respecting God's design and authority, the hierarchy that he's put in place in the world. God has given animals for us to use, to eat for our good. But this also has to be done within the bounds of God's law God's rules, and God sets the limits on how we use animals. And here, God protects the young by prohibiting man from taking the mother and leaving the young to starve. So it's, it's even still related to mothers, just like the commandment is honor your father and mother. So we have a parallel kind of relationship here. And God is protecting the species by allowing man to take the young or the eggs, but leave the mother so that she can continue to bear more young and propagate the species. Now, the bigger principle underneath this, I'm going to say it this way, is all life belongs to God, and God determines what is appropriate for that life. Okay, all life belongs to God, and God determines what's appropriate for that life. God's the creator. If you create something, you own it. It's yours. If, if, If I made a chair, a wooden chair, you could not just come take the chair because it's mine. I made it, I created it, I own it. You also couldn't take my chair and use it, for example, to hammer in a nail. If I said, I don't want it to be used for that purpose because it's mine, I made it. I get to say what it's for. In the same way, God created all that is. He created the earth. He created us. He created the animals. He created the plants. He gets to say what it's for. He gets to determine the purpose and the role of each thing. He gets to determine the limits on how we interact with those things. So the the, the principal teaching on this comes right out of the first chapter of Genesis. It's the dominion mandate. Genesis 1:28, God blessed Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So right there, God is telling them to have dominion over the birds. This law that we're looking at is a specific application of how they are to have dominion over the birds, Okay. So that verse in Genesis teaches us that we're supposed to fill the earth, we're supposed to be productive, we're supposed to subdue the earth, meaning we use human ingenuity and inventions to control and harness the power of the earth, and we're to have dominion over the animal world. That includes things like using animals to plow, or using genetics to to breed more productive animals, or better meat using plants to create medicinal treatments. All of those things fall under that umbrella. But all of this comes from the hand of God who created it and owns it. We are stewards. We're supposed to use the earth and care for it in a way that honors his ownership and his rules. So man should manage and steward life according to God's rules. Man should not wipe out a species. This law gives us an example of the protection, protecting the life-bearing of that species. That's one case law. The other case law I want you to see is in Deuteronomy chapter 20. So it's either like on the same page or really close by there in your Bible. Deuteronomy 20. And we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. But I want to go back a little bit farther so that we get the context here. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, and I'm going to start reading in verse 10. If you were looking at the heading for this section, you would see something like laws about warfare, okay? And we're going to jump in kind of in the middle of those laws about warfare. Jump in with me at verse 10, Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. And by the way, I'm not going to touch on that aspect of the law this morning. That's a separate issue. Don't have time for that this morning. Lots of good things we can talk about about that. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its mails to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus shall you do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. Okay, so those, that set of rules is general rules for warfare with cities that are far away. So this is kind of the generic rules about warfare. Okay, Um, seek terms of peace. If it doesn't happen, then you have the right to lay siege. And, you know, it goes on and gives you those kinds of things. But now we're going to get an exception that is more specific to Israel's immediate circumstances. So in verse 16, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. This is specifically the people who are living in the promised land. These are the people that God previously, hundreds of years before, had said, we're going to wait. You're not going to go in yet because the time of their iniquity is not yet full. Now, when Israel is going in, their iniquity is full. In other words, God has said, I have been patient with these people as long as possible, and now is time for judgment to fall on them, and I'm going to use Israel to bring about that judgment on these nations. So it's going to be for Israel's good, because they're getting the land God promised, but it's also specifically a judgment on those nations. This is an unusual thing, okay? So this is, this is something that God's giving specific instructions to Israel, but this is not a pattern for us to follow, because God doesn't tell us I'm about to judge those people and I'm going to use you to do it and so I want you to go into that land. He doesn't do that for us. So the first set of rules about ethical warfare, those do apply to us today. The last couple of verses we just read don't apply to us because it's an exception that God is giving to Israel for a specific circumstance, okay? That sets us up then for the case law I want you to see in verses 19 and 20 and here's what that says. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. What on earth is that all about? Right? I mean, like so many of these Old Testament laws that we come across, what is God getting at here? Well, let's look at, first of all, what is allowed? You're allowed to lay siege to a city, okay, when you've offered terms of peace and they've been rejected. Here in these verses specifically, you're allowed to eat the fruit from the trees, and you are allowed to chop down the trees that are not trees for food in order to use the wood for war. What's the restriction? Well, first it says you're not allowed to destroy its trees, chopping them down, but more specifically, you are not allowed to chop down trees for food. So we got a distinction here between two different kinds of trees, trees that are for food and trees that are not for food, okay? Now, there's a translation issue that we need to clarify here, and I'm indebted to um, an author named Jonathan Burnside, his book, God, Justice, and Society. He does a really good job of explaining this. But he says, the phrase here, are the trees in the field human? Literally what the phrase says is, the tree of the field is man, or man is the tree of the field. Most translations turn this into a rhetorical question because the translators don't really know what to do with it. But that's not the most straightforward way to translate it. See, the the straightforward translation, man is the tree of the field, leaves you with a really difficult interpretation. What is that talking about? So the translators take the liberty of changing what's there a little bit and making it a rhetorical question, even though they're not all in agreement on what it would mean. A couple of observations about this phrase, if we translate it literally, man is the tree of the field. The word man can mean mankind, you can translate it human, but it also can mean specifically male, a person of the male gender, a man. And the other thing we need to note here really carefully is when this is said it's said about the trees of the field not the trees for food so there's a distinction here and we have to note that carefully if we want to interpret this rightly and i think the way to understand this is that there's a parallel here with what we read earlier in verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, we were talking about the proper treatment of men and women. So, men are fair game to cut down with the sword. Women and children are not to be cut down with the sword, but are to be taken and enjoyed as the spoils of war. Now, what that phrase means you might, women might be brought into Israel. They might serve in a household. They might get married into a family, whatever the case may be. The children are gonna be raised in the community. They're gonna have the benefits of being part of the community as well as they're going to contribute to the community. So that's what that enjoyment of the spoils of war means. But the women and the children are to be taken and enjoyed as spoils of war while the men are cut down with the sword. What's the treatment of the two kinds of trees? The trees of the field are fair game to cut down, but the trees that bear fruit, food, are to be preserved and enjoyed. So the treatment of the trees seems to be a tangible illustration of the underlying principle, which says that in war, the women and children are not to be killed, but only the men. Do you see the difference? Do you see how the trees parallel the people? You have trees of the field that don't bear fruit, just like men don't bear children. And you have trees that bear fruit, just like you have people who bear fruit, who bear children. We call them women, right? A little confusing in our society today, but trust me, that's what a woman is, okay? So we have men and women, we have trees of the field, trees that bear fruit. And it seems to be that this is an illustration that's trying to help us understand this. And the larger principle, again, the same as the last one, all life belongs to God and God determines what is appropriate for that life. All life belongs to God. God determines what's appropriate for that life. God has created men and women to be different. Therefore, the treatment of men and women is different. God tasked Adam with guarding and keeping in the Garden of Eden. He was the provider and the protector. He's the one who does battle. Eve was created to be Adam's helper, to come alongside and help him in his God-given task. She was the mother of all living She's the one who would bear children, who would be the nurturer, the giver of life to her children. Remember the principle that we saw a couple weeks ago don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk, don't mix life and death. And so it's men who go to war, and women and children are not to be cut down by the sword. Because the men are to guard and keep, and the women are to nurture and give life. They bear fruit, they bear children. And God's laws for ethical warfare respect and honor those differences. And God's rules regarding the ethical treatment of trees during war are a vivid illustration of that principle. You can cut down the trees of the field, they're fair game, but don't cut down the fruit-bearing trees just as you don't cut down the fruit-bearing people women. And again, this is grounded in the dominion mandate and the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve specific roles. He's given men and women different roles. And the creation mandate is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God's rules for trees here illustrate that principle. The fruitful, life-giving trees are to be protected and preserved. This means we should be honoring the differences between men and women, differences that God designed. Men and women have different roles and our culture hates this with a passion. Your children will be assaulted with the opposite message to this. From the feminist movement on up to the gender confusion that we have today All of it is an assault on God's design. But God's design is for our good. It's ultimately inescapable. It's the way God has made the world, He's written it right into the fabric of creation itself. We may talk about that more in future weeks. And specifically, in the context of military ethics, generally speaking, women and children are off limits. And that means, if you've been following the news, if the atrocities that have been reported as to what Hamas did in Israel, if those are true, then that is the most direct and flagrant violation of God's law possible. It's a great wickedness according to God's standards. But we don't have to look to the other side of the world to find a nation that fails to honor God's design. We have enshrined into law that we will draft young women into the military. That too is an abomination. That's absolutely opposed to God's design. And the fathers that are here, I hope that you would do the same as me, that you would lay down your life to prevent anyone taking your daughter into the military. We also see here that there's an educational value of God's law that's designed to teach. God's written these patterns right into creation itself. God has created the world with a particular order. And if we're tuned in, there's a lot to learn. In this law, we see that there's parallels between plants and people. God designed that, and it's worth our time to consider the order with which God has created the world, and the way that we're supposed to treat the environment actually is to mirror the way that we're supposed to treat people. The underlying principle of both of those laws today was all life belongs to God, and God determines what's appropriate for that life. So the bird law protects the mother so that she can continue to bear more young. The tree law protects the fruit-bearing trees so that they can continue to bear more fruit. Man is told to be fruitful and multiply because God is a life-giving God. And Christians, of all people, should be people who celebrate life, who celebrate children. I'm thankful for the number of children that we have here at Icon. Keep them coming. The psalmist, in the eight verses that we saw this morning, three times asked God, give me life, God is a life-giving God. His word is a life-giving word. The other point of application that we need to think about here is that we are stewards of the environment, of the world, of the animals, of the plants, of our children. It means we're responsible to care for those things in a way that honors God's law. Now, if you elevate the environment like the environmental movement does or the Green Party, then you've made the environment into a God. A biblical worldview says that both man and the environment are subject to God, to his sovereignty, to his laws. On the other hand, if you abuse the environment and you fail to be a good steward, you're violating God's law in that direction and you're failing to receive the blessing that God has given us in the proper stewardship of the earth for our good. God has given us the environment for our use and for our good. We are supposed to subdue it, to have dominion, to rule over it, to use it for our advantage, to develop it. But we do all of that within the boundaries of God's rules. And God's design is for our good. When we do that, we find that's actually what's best for us. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the Good Shepherd. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan and his forces are the ones who seek death. Jesus came that we might have life. As lawbreakers, we deserve death. So, how is it that Jesus can give us life? A few verses later, Jesus says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus' death is what pays the penalty for the law-breaking, the sins of his people. And just like he was raised to life, if you have faith in him, then you too have that promise of eternal life life. And by the way, that's another place that God has written that story right into the fabric of creation itself. A seed goes into the earth and is buried, and it sprouts up new life. One day, each one of us is going to be buried in the dirt, but there's coming a day, if you have faith in Christ, that you'll be raised to new life. When you're a follower of Christ, you've been given eternal life by faith in Christ then you can live as God intends for you. You can have life and have it abundantly. That means life the way God designed it, life according to his rules. That's a life that brings the greatest flourishing because it's according to his design. Lord, I pray that as we Keep working our way through these laws that you have given us. Sometimes these laws are ones that just sound so strange, so distant, so disconnected from our lives. Help us to be diligent to understand your law. Help us to realize that you've given us those things to help us live in the best way possible. We are responsible to obey these principles that you've embedded in these case laws. And so we have something to learn from the bird law and from the tree law. It tells us something about who we are and who you've designed us to be. May we be faithful and willing to be people who live according to your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.